Amen. Well, we're going to be looking at a series in a moment, which is about the Lord's presence. And um, today we're looking at the subject, the lie of insignificance, this idea um, that we're not particularly very significant, God can't possibly use us, um, all of that. And we're going to be looking at the call of Moses to kind of illustrate that and help us to understand that a little bit more. But so let's pray, first of all, just to hand this to the Lord. Father God, we pray um, that we would have a true sense of what it means to be in Christ and that we're not going to be in any way limited by any sense of insignificance, maybe through our own experience and life experience and life journey. But Father God, we pray that you would take these pieces of scripture from the call of Moses and that you would speak into our hearts and enable us to understand that we are more than significant with you and that with you we have all that we need. We ask that in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, our sense of significance can be quite easily undermined um, in all kinds of ways um, and it can be um, in our, our own sort of life experiences in our own lifetime, not least, of course, when we were younger. I think actually most of us have got events in our lives that are either, they're either sort of loss events or they're threat events or trauma events and things like that. But somehow in the, in the journey, we can, we can get an impression that we're not really valued that highly or we don't really value ourselves. And, um, and that can happen quite early on in, in childhood. I remember, um, I don't know about you, but I don't know if you were ever, when you were at school, ever picked for a team. Do you remember that time when you would be with your back against the wall? I have that memory. And I, so it's still, obviously, it's very vivid because it's obviously not resolved yet, is it? <laughs> and, um, but I have that memory of being, oh, just with your back against the wall and all these kids being picked and um, and I had unfortunately it was a game for, for, for to, to play football, but I'd, my reputation had gone before me because I'd played in a, a game um, before that, and I'd managed to score an own goal. And uh, and in 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 light of the subsequent death threats for my own members of my team, I um I thought I was so determined to try and put things right. I saw the ball come up in the air, and I thought all I need to do. I thought, oh God, I just what I got all I do. I just trap it and pass it. Trap it pass it, trap it, pass it. And as it came down, I grabbed it with both hands <laughs> and I ran, which of course, if it were rugby, would be great. It was a great catch for rugby. Unfortunately, it wasn't. It was football. And um, Mr. Mr. Marriott, Marriott, who was our, our sports teacher, I always remember had a, a sort of, had a, sort of a, a real sort of enjoyment of, of irony, uh, said at one point... Um, after much discussion and, and, and scrutiny, we've come to the conclusion that we think it might be handball. <laughs> but unfortunately, my, my reputation had gone before me, you see. So I'd, I was standing in this, in this line, and the kids had come out. They always get two kids out first, who you'd think were the best footballers, but actually weren't really. They were just the lippy ones. And they would come out, and then they would pick their, their mates first. That would be the first thing. They would pick their mates and then they'd pick the people that were quite good at football. They would come out as well. And then you're down to the kind of middle ranks. And, um, and you sort of started to pick those. And of course, well, I'm still there. And we're still there. And it gets whittled down and whittled down eventually. Um, and there's about three or four of us left. 
you know, like that sort of old spring onion at the bottom of the fridge that nobody really wants. And, um, and I've got Kevin, who's about three, who's tiny, and he's about three years younger than him. I don't even know why he's there. Why is he even there? And they pick him, so Kevin goes off. And now there's only three of us. And there's me, there's Billy, who was, and I was quite slender at the time, I have to say, I was quite thin and slender. Billy, who's absolutely enormous. He was, and if he was, actually, he was eating something while he was standing there. There's Billy, who we used to call Buffalo Bill, which was more of a reference to being the buffalo than anything else. Um, and then there was Phil. And so they said, yeah, we'll have, we'll have Billy. Come on, Bill, come on. So Billy went off. And now it's just me and Phil, okay? That's just, to, just to show you just how much, this is absolutely true, how much my reputation had gone before me. Phil had fallen out of his mum's fruit tree at the back of the garden and had sprained his ankle and was now on crutches, okay? <laughs> and so they said, no, we'll have Phil. Come on, Phil. And I'm like, seriously? He's on crutches, you know, so it's just literally, and at that point, Mr. Marriott, I do remember this, Mr. Marriott intervened and he said, oh, no, no, no Phil, you can't, <laughs> you can't possibly, no, no, you have to, may have to sit this one out. Come on, lads, no, no, choose Robert, come on. Um, and they went, oh, no, oh, sir, please, no, sir, don't give us Grinsel, sir. No, sir, not Grinsel, oh, please, sir, not Grinsel. And I thought, it's moments like that, isn't it, in life, that doesn't do a great amount for your self-esteem, and I've got various stories like that that go all the way through my, my childhood and my, my adult life <laughs> where you, you think, oh dear, well maybe, maybe I'm not very good. And Moses was probably thinking the same thing. Bear in mind that Moses, of course, had lived in Pharaoh's palace for 40 years um, but of course had escaped that, um, having killed an Egyptian and was effectively a fugitive for 40 years. He was hiding in the desert. And he must have felt that he wasn't really worth much at all. And that God really couldn't have any use of him or for him. But when you look at the calling of Moses, it's quite extraordinary, isn't it? Because he doesn't come across as a kind of person that you would use to lead a nation. And we're often left with this thought that we don't have the skills and the qualifications and the things and the stuff, you know, and and, and we just don't seem to have it. Whereas, in fact, um, what really is significant in society, the people that really matter are the people with the skills and the qualifications and the things that are owned and the places they've been to and the stuff that they know. And if you've got lots of that, then you're really significant. But if you haven't got lots of it, then you're not. But when you look at the calling of Moses, he didn't represent any of that, really. He kind of just was a man who was very broken, was living in isolation in the desert for 40 years in fear. He was in fear. Fear of Pharaoh and fear of Pharaoh's court. And so let's go to Exodus chapter 3, Moses and the burning bush. Exodus chapter 3, verses 1 to 6. 
Now Moses was tending the flock of Jethro, his father-in-law, the priest of Midian, and he led the flock to the far side of the wilderness and came to Herob, the mountain of God, just of course Mount Sinai. And there the angel of the Lord appeared to him in flames of fire from within a bush. Now of course it wasn't the fact that the bush was on fire, that was a quite a common occurrence um, with, uh, with the heat of the desert, it's quite a natural thing um, for bushes to suddenly combust. I think Australia knows all about that. Um, What's interesting about this is that um, it wasn't being consumed. It wasn't being consumed. And you might ask yourself, well, why doesn't God just speak to Moses? Why doesn't he just speak from heaven? Why does he have to do the the burning bush trick, (laughs) so to speak? Or just speak into his heart? And the answer to that is, is that Moses can't hear God at this point. Moses really isn't able to hear what the Lord is saying to him. He probably doesn't think he's worthy at all for God even to speak to him. And then the angel of the Lord appeared to him in flames of fire from within the bush. Moses saw that though the bush was on fire, it did not burn up. So Moses thought, I will go over and see this strange sight, why the bush does not burn up. And I want you to notice verse 4, because verse 4 is why God does the burning bush trick. When the Lord saw that he had gone over to look, suddenly he's got Moses into a place where he can hear from God, where he can receive what God has for him. I think sometimes the Lord needs to get us into those places, doesn't he? Where we can hear him, hear what he's saying to us. And God called to him from within the bush, Moses, Moses. You know you're in trouble, don't you, when God uses your name twice? Because that's, that's, that's written large throughout all of scripture, Samuel, Samuel, Peter, Peter. You know that... Um, that God's got something significant for you. And Moses says, here I am. And God says, do not come any closer, but take off your sandals, for the place where you are standing is holy ground. And then he said, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. And at this, Moses hid his face, because he was afraid to look at God. He doesn't think he's fit enough for any of this task. He doesn't think he's going to be able to do what God calls him to do. Um, in fact, he comes up with a whole raft of excuses, as you, as you might know the story. He comes up with five excuses as to why he really isn't the right place, and maybe God has made a mistake in picking him. People won't listen to him. He's slow of speech. And he just doesn't think that he's significant enough as a person. And of course you can see that in verse 11. But God gives him the answer as to why he is able to do this. And the answer as to why Moses is able to do it comes in verse 12. If you'd like to look at verse 12. Because in verse 12, God makes it absolutely clear that the qualification that Moses has is that God will be with him. Moses doesn't understand that his qualifications are not in his skills, 
They're not in his abilities and in his relationship with God. They're not, if you like, in what he can bring to the table. They are in who he brings to the table. It's all about his relationship with God. It's not how well he can speak to men, because he said to God, I can't speak, I just haven't got the words. It's about how long he speaks to God. Because in fact, in Deuteronomy 34 verse 10, and you don't have to turn to it, it says of Moses, no one else did God ever say since the time no prophet has risen in Israel like Moses, whom the Lord knew face to face. This was somebody who had, because of his relationship with God, because he, he knew God in such an intimate and personal way, was able to carry something of the presence of God with him. And it was only the presence of God that would have enabled him to do this task. Bear in mind, Pharaoh wouldn't have talked, wouldn't have talked to anybody. Pharaoh believed himself to be a god. He would not contend with anyone who he didn't believe was also a god. And in chapter 7, verse 1, the Lord says, I have made you as God to Pharaoh. It's the only way he's going to be able to speak to Pharaoh. He'd have you killed immediately. But he was made God to Pharaoh. How could he do that? Because he knew God so intimately and so powerfully. And he didn't have any of these great qualifications. He wasn't somebody who had all these amazing gifts and abilities of speaking and persuasion and education and everything else. There was only one qualification that counted. And that was that he knew God. It's not our reputations as the people of God. It's not our beauty and our skills. It's not our place in society. It's not our good name. It's not all that we've done. It's not all all that we can achieve. What What makes us a distinguished people is the same thing that made Israel a distinguished people. And that is the presence of God, that you bring God's presence with you. And that's what makes us stand out. So why does God call Moses if he's not very up to much, so to speak? Well, this is answered really in verses 7 to 10. And I want to just pick on this for a moment. The Lord said, I have indeed seen the misery of my people in Egypt. I've heard them crying out because of their slave drivers. I'm concerned about their suffering. So I've come down to rescue them from the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them up out of the land into a good and spacious land, a land flowing with milk and honey, the home of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Pezzarites, Hivites and Jebusites. And now the cry of the Israelites has reached me. And I have seen the way the Egyptians are oppressing them. So now go, I am sending you to Pharaoh to bring my people, the Israelites, out of Egypt. Now the cry of the Israelites has reached me. If you look at scripture, you will see in fact that we are called, all of us are called to a human cry. You're not called to a task. You're not called... Um, to a job, you're called ultimately to a human cry. 
Somewhere, someone is crying out to God, and in response to that, God sends a person. That's the scriptural model. And, and in fact, that's ultimately what's happened here with, with, um, with, with Moses. It doesn't matter that he hasn't got all that's required, all the skills and all the abilities. All that matters is that Israel is crying out to the Father. And the Father says to Moses, I've heard the cry of this people. And my response to this is I'm going to send you. And if you don't feel equipped for that, that's fine because all that you need is me. You don't need to bring anything to the table because it's about who you bring to the table. And it's about my presence coming with you into the hurt and the challenge that these people are experiencing. It's always to a people. It's always in response to a human cry. I remember Graham Cook. I don't know if you're familiar with Graham Cook. He's a great biblical teacher in my view, and a man who moves powerfully in prophecy. He told a, a story of a friend of his where he and his wife had gone to, his friend and his wife had gone to uh, visit some friends in London. It was a part of London with quite a lot of crime and social problems. But they'd been praying for this community. And because the Holy Spirit put such a compassion on him um, for that community, really felt on his heart such a compassion for it. Anyway, one morning he said he got up and he, he went over to the corner shop just to get some milk, brought um, one or two bits in the corner shop, got his milk, had a nice chat with the shopkeeper. And as he was stepping outside the shop, he said he just heard a human cry. Just, just He heard somebody crying, an adult crying. But he said it was a most bizarre experience because it wasn't that it was a distant cry. It was like somebody was right next to him and crying. So he told his friends about this and his, um, and his wife. And they, they said, well, maybe you're just a little bit stressed. You know, we can do that. We can have those sort of moments. And, 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 a, and a bit later on, he said as he was walking up the road, he heard it again. Literally just a, a crying person. And, um, and so he, he said to his wife, I think we need to pray about this. And she was getting a little bit concerned for him, really. And then um, that evening, she heard it. And so they started to pray, and the Lord spoke to them and said that his heart had gone to, the, the, their, to that community because there were so many people in that community who were so desperately hurting and so crying out. And he'd heard the cry this human cry that had come up to heaven and he was sending them out. Um, and they'd gone, they actually moved into that part of London and began a ministry there. It was a mar- marvellous, a wonderfully successful ministry. But it came out of that cry up to the Lord. Your calling is God's response to a human cry. We need to make ourselves available to God to meet the cry that ascends to heaven. Moses didn't realize it, but a lot of the stuff that went before him was all about preparation. He needed to know, um, well, of course, the language, the culture of the palace so that he could contend with Pharaoh. But he also needed to be emptied of himself. He needed that breaking of himself so that he becomes wholly dependent upon God. 
And in fact, if you look at people's life, some of the great servants of God in the past who have moved powerfully in the presence of God, there very often is a breaking. There's very often a kind of emptying of themselves. And this dependency that people have upon the Lord. They cast themselves on God. And of course Moses was no different. Moses was wholly dependent upon God for the task before him was overwhelmingly difficult and he didn't even think that it could be achieved. But he trusted that God would go with him. He knew that much from his own experience. And of course that was going to be proven to be the most powerful thing indeed. For when Moses contend with Pharaoh it was as if God was contending with Pharaoh. And when we go to people, when we respond to a human cry, we bring the presence of God into that response. But it means something of ourselves has to step aside, if you like. Something of ourselves has to say, Lord, it's all down to you. I'm going to release you and and be, if you like, submitted to you wholly in this area. I don't know if you're familiar with uh, uh, an evangelist and healer in the past, a lady called Catherine Coleman. Um, Catherine Coleman is an extraordinary lady. She was born on the 9th of, of May in 1907 um, in Missouri. She was, I don't know if you've seen any pictures of her. She's quite a strange-looking lady, tall, red-haired woman who carried with her a real powerful anointing, a very, very powerful anointing. Um, she was quite dramatic. She would wear sort of long, white gowns. Um, and um, she was quite dramatic on stage as well. In fact, very often she would weep in front of the congregation um, and, and, and say to them, because she would feel, if you like, the heart of God, that people hadn't surrendered their hearts to God. They hadn't surrendered and yielded properly to the Holy Spirit. But she had such faith and such anointing. People would sob and shake and collapse under the conviction of the Holy Spirit whenever Catherine Corman ministered. And many, many people, some of the, the great miracles, if you like, healing miracles of, uh, of that era were, were done in, in and through her ministry. It was remarkable. But I remember once she was being interviewed and they said, well, how did you know that God was going to use you like this and you know, come to this kind of place? And she said, well, I knew it because I died. And she said, I could take you to the place where I died. It's quite extraordinary. She said, um, it's at four o'clock on a Saturday afternoon. I remember the very place and I remember the exact time where Catherine Corman died. And it was at that point that I surrendered my whole life to God and continued to surrender my life to God. And as she gave her life to God, you see, the anointing started to increase in her. She learnt total obedience, but she learnt above all that she wasn't able to do it herself. It was only through his presence. Without his presence, there really wasn't any, any point in trying to do anything else. There's a lot of things that Catherine Corman wasn't. She wasn't a great preacher or a teacher. She never described herself as a preacher, actually. She said she'd often not call herself a preacher or a teacher. She said, all I do is I just want to stand here and talk to you. (laughs) 
and tell you about his love and tell you about his power. She wasn't really a great preacher. She wasn't a natural beauty. She wasn't a great singer. But she was a little bit like Moses, whose only quality was that she knew God face to face. And in that, she was able then to bring something of his presence and something of his power into that situation. I think that we are led to believe that we should have significance through all kinds of things in our lives, whether it's what we've achieved or who we are or what we can do or the skills that we bring. But in fact, if you look at Scripture, the people that God uses in Scripture are not the people that you would have thought God would have chosen. They're quite a mishmash of of quite desperate individuals, mostly. <laughs> and, um, and I think that's partly because there has to be something in them that's sufficiently empty so that his presence can fill it. And, and, and the consequence of that is that when we learn um, that it's by his spirit and by his presence and that really nothing else is going to make the difference... And we learn that where we can bring his presence into places, and we learn that actually um, the less that we can do, the more than he can do, then we're in a place where our significance is very, very much increased because it's not about us. It's all about him. And the only qualification we have to meet this human cry, it isn't just being compassionate, because there are lots of really good people out there who aren't in Christ who are very compassionate. And it isn't about being a good person who who does a lot for charity, because there's lots of good people out there who aren't in Christ who do that, and probably do it a lot better than we do. There's only the one thing that we have that can be distinctive and meet that human cry is by bringing his presence into that situation and allowing that person to feel or hear something of the love of God. That's what made Israel distinguished. It's what set Moses apart from the rest. It's what makes us, as God's people, special. And highly significant. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this account of the call of Moses because it reminds us that it's not a great man, it's a great God. It reminds us, Lord, that it's our relationship with you that can transform our relationships with others and their cry that goes out to heaven or their cry that you hear from heaven can be met really only ultimately by those who spend time in your presence because we bring something, we host something of that presence and we bring it into their lives. Help us to learn that, Lord, and teach us what it means to host your presence in Jesus' name. Amen.